He was a poser, a ladies' man, and a breathtaking speaker. After being on the front line of one of the major events of the 20th century, in his later years, he came to the Hoover Institution here at Stanford, first as a researcher, then as a cane-swinging geriatric professor. Welcome to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century, the series that looks at history through the life and work of major global figures with a connection to the university. I'm Daniel Ray, and in this episode, we'll be exploring the life of Alexander Kerensky. Kerensky was the Prime Minister of Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, and the man many Russian emigres blamed for losing the country to communism. At the height of the Cold War, Kerensky came to Stanford to teach and conduct research on the Russian Revolution, becoming a cult figure on campus. It's a great pleasure to be joined by Professor Bert Paternode. Bert is a lecturer here at Stanford and a fellow of the Hoover Institution. Bert is a prize-winning author whose book, The Big Show in Bolo Land, The American Relief Expedition to Soviet Russia in the Famine of 1921, won the 2003 Marshall Schumann Prize and was adapted into an American Experience documentary on PBS. But I'd also like to mention Trotsky, Downfall of a Revolutionary. One of the best books I've ever read in any well, genre. So it's, it's great to have you and it's on the great program. to be here, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. But could you begin by sketching the political situation in Russia in the years before the February Revolution and Alexander Kierensky's role in that period leading up to the dethronement of the Tsar? Right. So you could go back quite a ways to um, to do the backstory, so mm. to speak, of the Russian Revolution. But, you know, sort of a usual way to start is World War One, And Russia engaged in this war is not doing well against the uh, German and especially the Austrian armies. And it's not prepared economically to wage total war, which is, of course, uh, what World War One was. And so by the winter of 1916-17, a tremendous economic dislocation in Russia, bread shortages, worker strikes are on the rise, and it becomes very clear in that winter by January, February 1917, that the autocracy is on the verge of collapse. Now, there had been a moment 10 years earlier when that same autocracy and the Romanov dynasty were on the brink in the revolution of 1905. Um, but it survived at that point and was trying to reform itself. And one of the great debates in the field of Russian history is had World War I not intervened, would Russia have been able to evolve in the way that other constitutional monarchies did in Western and Central Europe? Be that as it may, by that winter of 1916-17, as its armies are defeated and there are soldiers uh, actually deserting the front, the military leaders and other leaders in the Russian government, especially in the so-called State Duma, the Russian parliament, persuades Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate the throne, which he does in the so-called February Revolution of 1917. Now, it actually takes place in March, <laughs> and uh, this is one of the problems with talking about 1917 because the Russian calendar was 13 days yeah. behind the calendar used in it's the, the West. It's the Julian versus the Gregorian, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, yeah. Julian versus Gregorian. Uh, but nonetheless, it's called the February Revolution. The Tsar abdicates. 
And what we get is the birth of something called the provisional government. Now, Alexander Kerensky is a key figure in that provisional government. Kerensky is someone who hails from the Volga region, from the city of Simbirsk, by the way, the same city that Lenin hails from. I think his father taught Lenin, is that right? His yeah. father was a school teacher, taught Lenin, uh, one of those amazing connections in this story. Kerensky actually had gone to uh, law school in what was known at the time as St. Petersburg. The name of the capital, of course, changes to Petrograd in 1914. And Kerensky becomes a kind of national figure in the wake of the 1905 revolution, that earlier unsuccessful revolution, by representing families of the victims, trying to get some sort of compensation from the government. In 1912, Kerensky becomes a member of the Duma, elected to the Duma. And by 1916-17, and certainly by the time of the February Revolution, when the Tsar abdicates, Kerensky is perhaps the most powerful man in the country. Mm. Now, this is not based on institutional power. That is something Kerensky hopes to amass in the months ahead. But a lot of this is simply force of personality. Soviet propaganda did a good job of painting a certain view of Alexander Kerensky. But actually, Kerensky was a spellbinding speaker, uh, a very charismatic figure, someone, and this fits the the stereotype of the Soviet propaganda uh, image, someone who was given to histrionics, mm. fainting spells. He was, as, a, as you said in your intro, a ladies' man, and he took pride in that, apparently. Um, so Kerensky was one of the key people in the group of Duma leaders and other liberal and conservative public figures who established this provisional government. Now, why is it called provisional? Because it was only intended to be a short-term sort of caretaker government until national elections, first of their kind um, democratic elections, could be arranged for the entire country. And that would provide a so-called constituent assembly, a kind of constitutional convention. That would give Russia a constitution. So that was the plan. Mm. But events were moving so fast, they were not going to wait for these neat little plans. Uh, and that's really the story of 1917. And what were Kerensky's politics? Well, Kerensky is liberal left, we would say. I mean, this is a very sort of moving target. He was um, too much a man of the left for um, sort of the leading figures mm. of the day known as the cadets, the cadet party. Um, he was affiliated with a party called the Socialist Revolutionary Party, which sounds pretty formidable, pretty left wing. <laughs> um, but there were the Socialist Revolutionary Party was a big tent. And Kerensky uh, leaned toward the sort of right wing of that party, which, by the way, would soon split up after 1917. So he is a socialist. He never stopped really calling himself a socialist. But he's not a radical. He's not, in other words, a kind of proto-Bolshevik or anything like that. And this is the era of so-called dual government. What did that mean? So there is this provisional government of mostly former uh, Duma members. Mm -hmm. But there also is something called the Soviet. And that, of course, came in with the 1905 revolution, was crushed 
1905-06, and then now is resurrected in 1917. And the Soviet is made up of socialist and more left-wing parties. The Bolsheviks are part of it as well. And Kerensky is a member of the Soviet and the Soviet Executive Committee as a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. So very important. The provisional government ostensibly has the power. The Soviet does not want to take power but rather because it's too early for a socialist revolution, mm -hmm. according to all the best Marxist theories, right? So the idea is to serve as a watchdog, to make sure the provisional government doesn't backslide. So the interesting thing is no member of the Soviet is allowed to serve in the provisional government. But Kerensky, the persuader-in-chief, <laughs> manages to persuade the other socialist revolutionaries to allow him to serve in the provisional government. So in the first, and there'll be a series of coalitions in this provisional government in 1917, in the first iteration, Kerensky is Minister of Justice. But that really belies the situation. He's really the most important single individual member of the provisional government. So he's the only one going back and forth between the Soviet and the provisional government. In the next iteration, once this coalition in the, that makes up the provisional government falls in May, Kerensky becomes minister of war. Fateful move. As minister of war, Kerensky, who is like every member of the provisional government, wants to keep Russia fighting in World War I, for the socialist parties, in particular those in the Soviet, they want Russia to withdraw from the war. Mm -hmm. Kerensky feels this would be a mistake. And as minister of war in June of 1917, he makes the fateful decision to launch an offensive uh, into Galicia against the Austrian armies. And it is a catastrophic defeat for the Russian military. It's the last of the major catastrophes on the front suffered by Russia during the war. And it really, at that point, leads to the unraveling of the provisional government. But it'll take a little while. And what was the Kornilov affair? And why was it so important? In the wake of the failed offensive, there is a general by the name of Kornilov who decides to march his forces from the front to the capital Petrograd, ostensibly, as Kornilov said, to shore up the authority of the provisional government. But in fact, as Kerensky fears, Kornilov has in mind a military coup and that he would oust Kerensky. So what Kerensky ends up doing in this hectic summer of 1917 is actually freeing from prison the Bolshevik leaders he had imprisoned after a failed revolt in July, uh, Trotsky, Leon Trotsky, chief among them. And Kerensky ends up arming the workers. So it's basically everyone has to be armed and ready for the Kornilov offensive. Problem is, Kornilov never makes it to Petrograd. So the coup, if that's what indeed it was, kind of fades out. But now Kerensky is surrounded by well-armed Bolsheviks, well-armed uh, workers, 
and soldiers really willing to sign up with the left-wing parties. There is one party that's the chief threat, and that's the so-called Bolshevik Party led by Vladimir Lenin uh, and now Leon Trotsky, who has joined the ranks of the Bolshevik Party. And the Bolsheviks now, as the only party that from the beginning has been against the war and has been in favor of pulling Russia out of the war, and whose slogan is all power to the Soviets, and Lenin's party advocates peace, land, and bread. This is the kind of platform that attracts soldiers who are deserting the front in large numbers, sailors in particular of the Baltic fleet. They become very important. And as well, workers in the factories, in particular in the critical cities, Petrograd and Moscow. And so what we see from August into September, October, is a desperate attempt by Kerensky to hold on to power. Mm -hmm. In September, the Bolsheviks gain a majority in the Petrograd Soviet. This is a major deal. And sort of the writing is on the wall at this point for Kerensky. And what happens next? Then, of course, comes uh, on the Russian calendar, the night of October 25th, 26th, the grab for power by the Bolsheviks. Um, there is no storming of the Winter Palace, the great, you know, mythical... Eisenstein. Yeah, the Eisenstein imagery and all of that. That's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Doesn't really need to happen. There's a quote from Lenin. It's probably apocryphal. He said about that night, power lay in the streets and we picked it up. Um, even if he didn't say it, he could have because that was sort of the situation. But the image the Bolsheviks wanted is that their Red Guards storm the Winter Palace, arrest members of the provisional government, but Kerensky has fled. That's also a famous scene in the Eisenstein movie, his car fleeing Russia. And it's, by the way, an American embassy car uh, with a little American flag fluttering. <laughs> uh, makes great, you know, great scene in the movie. And Kerensky flees Russia, ends up eventually in Paris, and he's there for most of the interwar period. And how did he cope personally amid the chaos of 1917? Yeah, Kerensky is one of these people who, and maybe, you know, being so ego-driven uh, probably has his benefits. This is a man who was unsinkable. I mean, in the summer, he became what the troops call the Russian troops persuader in chief. Because he wasn't a military man by background. Not at all. He was not, but you would have thought he was. He <laughs> donned a kind of semi-military outfit. There are great photos of him barnstorming the front, you know, open vehicle, haranguing the troops. And that was something, of course, he was very good at. The problem for Kerensky is that the troops at the front, just like the workers in the factories, were beyond powerful speeches. By August, September, Kerensky is now, I mean, he was the number one guy before, but he's now really prime minister. He keeps the minister of war portfolio. But the real disparity between the provisional government and the Soviet by the autumn comes out. Because the provisional government is set up in Petrograd, but it's as if hanging in midair. There are no local branches of the provisional government. The Soviet, on the other hand, from the beginning, it starts in Petrograd. Remember, they had a practice run in 1905. So immediately in Moscow, 
the other major cities, and even provincial cities and towns, Soviets begin to pop up. And so the Soviet in Petrograd could claim to actually have, the Soviet leaders could claim to have a constituency. And final word about this, when Lenin decides the Bolsheviks need to grab power, he is persuaded to hold off and wait, he's persuaded by Trotsky, to wait until there convenes in Petrograd a Congress of Soviets representatives from around the country. And Trotsky's idea, which Lenin endorses, is that if the Bolsheviks grab power in the name of this Congress of Soviets, that will lend legitimacy to their, what turns out to be uh, a coup, although they would call it a great revolution of the working masses and so on, the great October Socialist Revolution. By the time the Bolsheviks uh, grab for power and do so successfully, Kerensky is out. He does try to rally forces on the periphery to try to regain power. He's almost captured. Mm. Where's that? Somewhere west of Brest-Litovsk, where actually the first peace with the Germans was signed in 1918. And he was so persuasive that he had managed to rally forces to go along with him, but not enough. And he was lucky to escape with his life. Circumstances of how he escaped, we'll never know for sure, but he got out. And what should he have done differently to prevent the Bolsheviks (laughs) coming to power? Well, there are two things. Most historians would argue that there was not a lot he could have done that the larger trend was that the center could not hold. This was a failed state, and you had the extremes on the rise, and somebody like Kerensky simply had nothing to grab onto. But there are two charges made against him. The first one, which he hated hearing, all the way up to his time (laughs) at Stanford, he hated this. You know, why did you keep Russia in the World War? Had you taken Russia out of the war— you would have taken away Lenin's major issue, the Bolsheviks' major issue, which is peace. You would have won the loyalty of the troops. And Kerensky argues that had he done this, and he always put it in the context of letting down the allies, Russia would have been alone. It would not have stopped the process of disintegration that was going on. The best way forward was forward and to win on the front and to keep the allegiance of the Allies. So there's part two to that, and it relates to Kerensky helping or letting the Bolsheviks or enlisting the Bolsheviks and the working classes as his allies against the Kornilov coup. And the criticism is, and this may be more valid, that he underestimated the threat posed by the Bolsheviks. Many of their leaders were in exile, weren't they? When did Lenin get back to Russia? Uh, Lenin gets there in April. On the train through... On the train, the so-called armored train, the SEAL train, I should say, and gets to the station, the Finland station in Petrograd, and delivers another great Eisenstein uh, scene, (laughs) uh, you know, standing on top of the locomotive, I think, in there. But Lenin's speech sort of shocks his comrades at that time. He delivers the so-called April Theses. He says, you guys have been spinning your wheels and wasting time. We have to go for it. There's no sense holding back and saying that this is the time of the bourgeois phase of the revolution. 
It's the time where we can go over to a proletarian revolution and therefore all power to the Soviets. And what that meant was down with the provisional government. And if you look at the street demonstrations, some great photos in the Hoover archives here, you'll see all power to the Soviets. And oftentimes beneath that slogan, you read down with the provisional government. So Lenin was the radical of 1917. And returning to Kerensky, how did his failure affect him? Did it torment him? Yeah, I mean, that is not overstating the matter. And, you know, I base this not simply on the biographies of him uh, and the accounts of Kandinsky's life before he gets to Stanford, but just taking his time on campus, you know, uh, apart from what comes before and listening to the interviews he gives, including with the Stanford Daily and listening to what he says in class uh, at the talks he gives. He had this sort of massive chip on his shoulder, the man who lost Russia. Imagine trying that on yeah. see how that feels. <laughs> and so he got exasperated with the questions like, why didn't you take Russia out of the war? And especially the further you got away from those events, right? And you have Stalin and the Gulag and the Great Terror and all of that. And you know, people, how could you have underestimated the Bolsheviks? And you can imagine that, especially with young students in the classroom and he's talking to people, he would become exasperated and say, you don't understand what it was like back in 1917. And what did Kerensky do from 1918 to 1920, the years of the Russian Civil War? Kerensky is sort of bouncing around among the emigre community, Paris, Prague, has to be careful because I say the emigre community, but there are whites and there are whites, right? And there are more belligerent anti-red forces. There are uh, some of those who blame Kerensky for letting the Bolsheviks in. So he's sort of careful. He's worried about assassins. Mm -hmm. and um, With due reason? With good reason. Uh, absolutely. Although there's no – I mean, looked at all the biographies and – he was always, you know, looking over his shoulder. But the worst one found, the worst he got, and it happened probably twice on the streets of Paris, that some emigre would recognize him and come up to him and give him a good old slap in the face and curse at him for losing Russia. And there was nothing, of course, he could do about that. But at least it wasn't an assassin's uh, bullet. But sure, in the end... There were other white emigre leaders and one or two generals who were killed in Paris and elsewhere. And so Kerensky must have realized that the the long arm of the, of the Bolsheviks might be trying to get a hold of him. On the other hand, he was not the kind of figure, and anybody running the Kremlin in the 20s and 30s knew this, who was going to rally serious forces, especially in the early 1920s, against the Bolsheviks. He was through. Yeah. What was he doing? Um, he, from the beginning, he's giving talks justifying himself. He is public speaking everywhere in a um, particularly strong community of emigres in Prague. He's already beginning to work on his memoirs from a very early period, self-justifying and Magazine articles is usually the form this takes, but he has in mind eventually a book and trying to help raise money 
for the families of emigres who've landed in Europe. Mm -hmm. And Europe is his base during this period, up until Hitler begins to rise and living in Paris is not uh, any longer a safe Good thing idea. to do. Exactly right. And what about the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact? Did he have any thoughts on that? And then Hitler's reneging on that deal and invasion of Russia? I think, um, I think his voice sort of gets lost among all the voices in that period when the pact was signed, who, although it was a shock, I mean, these were ideological opposites, sworn enemies, seemingly coming together. And of course, we would find out within a short time that in the background, what the pact allowed to happen was for the Germans to invade Poland. So Kerensky's attitude was always... Uh, I'm not surprised by anything. I told you so. That was sort of an attitude thing that he had. And, you know, don't put anything past the Kremlin. And, of course, they would do this. Um, but there's nothing on the record of Kerensky's statements at this time. Of course, he's nervous about what happens after Hitler's drive to the yeah. east finishes. He's going to start looking west and Kerensky's living in Paris. But there's no indication that he sees what's coming. It's a non-aggression pact, which in his mind looked like it would allow Hitler to go west. But he doesn't seem to anticipate the secret protocols about the division of Eastern Europe. Um, he's a guy that never wanted to be one to say, God, I had no idea this was going to happen. You know, yeah. always like, yeah, I knew about this. And I sort of anticipated Just this. keeping it quiet. Keeping yeah, it yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I was there. I know a lot more than you do. That kind of thing. Yeah. And moving forward a decade from the end of the Second World War, what brought Kerensky now 74, still tall, athletic and still a commanding orator to Stanford in 1955. Um, the way it worked is um, Hoover Institution put together a little brochure about their Russian Soviet collections, which of course are and were at the time and are formidable. How did they acquire such a strong archive? Well, it starts right at the time of the revolution and especially during the Russian, Soviet Russian famine of 1921-23. Uh, there's a tremendous American relief effort. Led by Hoover. Led by Herbert Hoover. And, you know, one of Hoover's methods was you send in food to save people, but you also send in people to collect documents. <laughs> and there was a man he sent in named Frank Golder, one of the great curators for the Hoover Institution. And he amassed extraordinary things from everything from, from rare books to complete runs of periodicals memoirs, diaries, letters, uh, and it really put Hoover on the map. So by the 1950s, their curator, Witold Swarakowski, decides to put together a little brochure in 1954 on the great treasures that Hoover has on Russia and Soviet Union, in particular, the revolutionary year 1917. Well, this little brochure came to the attention of Kerensky, who is in New York at the stage. He's in yeah. New York, having fled Europe at the war's uh, outbreak. So he's living in New York City, Upper East Side. And someone in the field, uh, it's actually a Harvard historian, Karpovich, Michael Karpovich, um, who's a friend of Kierensky's, brings to his attention. You know, he's hearing Kierensky complain, I would write a book about the provisional government, and I would be able to really write a great memoir 
But there are no documents. I would have to go to the Soviet Union, and of course they won't let me. Karapovich says, look at this. Uh, the Hoover Institution says it has the goods, says it has what you need. So in 1955, Kerensky came out. So it's his first trip to Stanford. He was supposed to be out for two weeks. He checks out the collections. He stays for two months. <laughs> and then he realizes, you know, there's a gold mine here. So his presence on campus in the summer, autumn of 1955 inspires the Hoover Institution to put together a documentary volume of translated documents of the provisional government in 1917 with annotations by Kerensky. And, of course, they need the man here to do it, and they ask him if he will become a research associate. He arrives on campus in 1956, and he will be out here for most of the next several years. And... Let's hear a recollection of one of the students who was contemporary with Kerensky at Stanford, Dottie Walters. And she used to walk across campus with Kerensky and for a long time didn't know who he was. Thank you to the Stanford Historical Society All History Programme for this recording. I was a sponsor at uh, Robley Hall. And I had an interesting corridor that I was responsible for inspiring, leading, helping, etc. I would just, you know, leave the dorm and I had an 8 o'clock class at History Corner with wonderful, wonderful Gordon Wright. Europe since 1914. And so I would walk from Robley and I would go down and walk past the, uh, was it the fire station? Oh, was the, there? Corner. the corner. The corner. And there was always this older gentleman there and he got to sort of talking to me. And he had kind of a strange accent and he asked me what my name was and who my father and what my father and mother did and blah, blah, blah. And so we would walk and this had been going on for maybe two, three months. And so one morning I was just frazzled because one of my sponsorees or sponsees, her parents had called and uh, told her they were getting a divorce. So I didn't study very much for the test. <laughs> so I stopped and here this gentleman said, Dottie, you don't sound like you are doing well. And I explained to him what I had gone through. And this test that I was going to take from uh, Gordon Wright. And he said, what is it on? And I said, well, it's on the Russian Revolution and leading up to it and so forth and so on. And I said, you know, probably Russia would have been in better shape if the uh, temporary government would, could go on, go in and so forth and so on. And he said, Dottie, you listen to everything I say. I will walk you to class. So here I was going down through the corridors, through the archways, and this little man in this broken accent was telling me the whole thing. And I looked at him as I, he says, now you can take your test. And I said, how do you know so much? Dottie, I am Alexander Kerensky. What do you make of that portrayal of Kerensky's character? But well, that sounds very much in character with the uh, the other reminiscences that I've read about his time on campus. 
He's feeling very much at home on the campus. He discovers he likes the classroom scene. Picture it, nowhere else in New York, you know, he was not invited to speak to classes as he was at Stanford. He liked the audience. He loved the Stanford Daily front page write-ups of his talks. So Kierdinsky comes back in 1965, and he's, um, he's actually on a book tour. The book he published was called Russia and History's Turning Point. And it, it's a moment to bring this in. Um, I said at the beginning that Kierdinsky was a socialist in 1917. And in the 1960s, Kierdinsky really spoke, um, and I think at one point along the way, described himself as a socialist, uh, unrepentant socialist, <laughs> but not socialism of the kind they have over in the Soviet Union. Talked about reforming the system talked about how people change. The Soviet people will wake up to the problem at one point. Arguably, they did. I mean, he was 30 or so years, you know, too late. But yeah, so Kierdinsky is hopeful. He also seems to absorb the 60s anti-war vibe on campus. And that's fascinating to me, because here's this guy who looks out of place on campus. He's a figure from the old world. He may, may as well be, you know, 19th century figure. And some of the statements in his talks, you know, make peace, not war, make love, not war, whatever, not bombs, but peace. So so in 65, when he comes back to tour the country, uh, he's part of a book tour. He's asked in to give a couple of seminars and loves the audience, loves the idea of it and agrees to do it. So he ends up giving two. One is called the Russian Provisional Government. And the other is called Contemporary World Politics. He's 84 years old, couldn't see very well. <laughs> so he didn't know who quite was talking to him during the class. And he, you know, he sort of wandered a little bit. His English was maybe, maybe had deteriorated just a little bit, or at least the accent was thicker. But still, it was the great Kerensky, right? And I have to tell you that this was such a hit that in the spring he was asked to do the same two courses again. So he did the Russian provisional government. You know who the star of that particular course was, <laughs> right? But the second one was no longer called Contemporary World Politics. It was called, and I dare you to find a, a course similarly titled, it was called Kerensky on Contemporary World Politics. <laughs> I mean, that must be one of a kind. Yeah. So he was quite a hit with the students, although... How anonymous was he? Uh, he yeah. was not anonymous. I mean, I think, you know, he, the fact that there was kind of a lineup to take his course yeah. and they were packed and he stuck around for arguments in the end if anyone tried to challenge him about what he did wrong in 1917. And as I say, and every once in a while he could tell maybe students were dozing off. Maybe he was trying to keep himself awake. <laughs> he would take that cane and he would thwap it on the table. And boy, that would startle people. It was also a way for him to emphasize a point. Very effective. Everyone you talk to from that period who sat in the classroom with him remembers the cane. Now, interestingly, in the earlier visits. So when he was a Hoover Research Associate, late 50s to 1961, he had a cane 
and he would do his morning constitutional walk. He's a big walker. So a 4K walk every morning. He lived most of the time on the campus just uh, below the hills where the dish is, and he would walk across campus sometimes into Palo Alto, but always a 4K walk. Not sure how how he figured out what 4K was. Uh, His morning constitutional. And people noticed this guy. How could you not know who this was? There's this old guy walking. So by word of mouth, it became clear. This was the guy who lost Russia. <laughs> this was this was Alexander Kerensky and uh, erect military bearing. Mm. Everyone said he looked like a former military guy. Of course, that's what he would have loved everyone to think. And most people said he looked like a man in a hurry. Now, when he came back, 65, 66, and he would come back one more time in 67, he came back, and I'll come back to the walking in a moment, but he came back in 67 uh, for a conference that Hoover was sponsoring, the, the Hoover Institution, on 50 years of Soviet communism. He was the headliner. Big draw, I mean, to have Alexander Kerensky oh. there. But during his time in 1965, 66, he was still walking. But now he was walking a little more stooped, uh, the face a little more lined and creased, the hair now fully white before it had been gray. I mean, he's in his 80s, Mm. in his mid-80s at this point. And the cane, it becomes clear to people, is being used not simply as a style statement or something, but his eyesight's not so good. So he has to keep from crashing into things. And what's the story of the Red Hot Professor contest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is, uh, this, I mean, this is one of those things you actually see it in print to believe it. So there used to be a contest. And today, of course, it would be regarded as very politically incorrect. It was called the Red Hot, <laughs> Red Hot Professor Contest. Red probably is was not a color that he. Oh, even, I hadn't well. even thought of that connection. <laughs> Red hot, yeah, um, yeah. I hadn't even thought of that connection. But the idea was you choose a professor who is you know dynamic and your favorite, outstanding, and you know all around classy person. And in 1965, Kerensky came in second. Uh, in the November voting, which when I saw this, actually, when I first encountered this, I was reading issues of the Stanford Daily, and it said, Red Hot Professor Contest, Kerensky in the lead. I couldn't (laughs) believe my eyes. And you can imagine that students are doing this as a way to, I mean, it's not quite a joke, but it's, um, I mean, the whole idea of Kerensky and a Red Hot Professor, it was too good to pass up. So a lot of people are voting for Kerensky. Actually, the Dean of Freshman Men won that year in 1965, and he won with um, 19,000, about 750 votes. Kerensky actually came in with 18,200 <laughs> votes. Now, you could vote multiple times, right? Okay. So one imagines uh, some students getting out there and delivering a lot of votes for Kerensky. But, but hilarious to me were the quotes along the way. The winner would have to go to Stanford Stadium and lead the cheer or a cheer during the big game, so the Stanford-Cal game. I mean, it is too bad that we don't have – I mean, imagine the photos of this had he won the contest. But along the way, when he was interviewed, you know, how does it feel? Because we're, you know, in the count. You're way in the lead. 
And he said, I am honored by this, and I would be happy to lead a good cheer, you know, during the uh, the big game. Well, it never came to that. But the whole idea that he was in the running shows you the kind of impression that this wiry, old historical figure made on the Stanford campus all those years ago. Well, Kerensky died in New York in 1970, aged 89. Why is he buried in Putney? West London, but you know his. He, I, I will take a guess. Yeah, he had two sons. He was married, I think, four or five times, and he had two sons who remained in Europe after he moved to the West. He married a. He married an actress, but I think the the two kids were with his. I'm going to guess here, his first wife, who was a Petrograd actress, and he got her out. I think, and they. Um, at least the two sons lived in London or lived in, in England. And I'm guessing they were the ones who arranged to have him brought back to, I mean, was the idea eventually he would go back to Russia, a post-Soviet Russia? I don't know, but I didn't know that he was buried there. Of course, I should have wondered if he's not buried in New York, where is he buried? So the the children in London, the sons in London, that's my guess. The other thing is the impression you get reading about his life in New York, he never really um, – well, it's easy to live in New York as I've done. You live in Manhattan and you you know, you know, don't feel you've put down roots there. It's a great place to live, right? Um, and the impression you get is that Kerensky lived in that Upper East Side apartment and really had no sense of allegiance mm-hmm. to New York. And he may have made arrangements with his sons to uh, to be buried over there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. His gravestone says only Alexander F. Kerensky, born 4th May 1881, died 11th June 1970. How should we remember him? Good question. I think that Kerensky is like a vessel and that all those people, all those Russians in particular – but I think people around the world who wanted an outcome for Russia that took the country after the Romanovs toward democracy, right? And certainly avoided a Bolshevik Soviet experiment. All those hopes were placed on this man. And I just have the feeling that no matter what his foibles, no matter what his missteps in 1917, he was sort of doomed to fail, but he made an extraordinary show of it. I mean, he was one of the great actors on the stage of history. Um, and I think that's, you know, looking back, that's how he will be remembered. And if I can go to one moment, one of the most striking things that I found about Kaninsky on campus is that in 1966, Kaninsky walked into Cubberly Auditorium, joining about 600 other moviegoers, and watched for the first time, he had never seen it before, Eisenstein's 10 Days That Shook the World. That's the English title for the film uh, October. Well, why this is so interesting is that the image of Kierinsky as the hapless, panic-stricken, um, conspiratorial, treasonous little guy 
comes from that Soviet propaganda put out there comes from this film. That's the image of him trying at all costs to save his own skin in 1917. And Kerensky sat in that audience. He had never seen it. And we have eyewitness accounts saying that he seemed to squirm at certain moments, confronted with the events of his past there. But a couple of days later, he gave a talk and he said, there's a lot of fiction and myth-making going on in that film. I was there, I can tell you. (laughs) But that's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you very much. It's been great having you on the programme. Thank you, Daniel. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. Join me next time when I'll be speaking to the Stanford professor and best-selling author Claiborne Carson. The editor of Martin Luther King's papers, Claiborne will discuss what King's legacy really should be as well as his own personal association to the public commemoration of this great figure. Thanks for listening.